0: I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you realize that there's no way you're going to win, so you just decide to stop competing and try to have a good time. You ever been there? Happens to me a lot as a football coach. I often find myself coaching a game where I realize we cannot win, and it is very difficult as a coach to concede defeat And turn your attention to helping your players just have a good time. This is especially true. I started out coaching my sons. And so I remember Jordan as a 10-year-old and coaching 10-year-old boys to play. And it's kind of like herding cats. It got worse the following year when his younger brother Sam started playing at nine. So imagine you're playing football with eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. It's just crazy. I was actually very frustrated because it really wasn't like football until week eight. Finally, week eight, it began to look like the sport that I've grown up loving and playing and coaching, but it was something. And you get to a point when you're coaching these little nuts that you just realize it's not going to work. No matter what you do, you're going to lose this game. So you might as well not let it bother you. You might as well just accept it And focus instead on having a good time. You realize this also with babies. We're experiencing a bit of a baby boom right now at Grace. I think our nursery, the last time we checked, has tripled in the last year. So that's crazy. We're getting ready to uh, expand that nursery. Um, So many kids are just showing up. uh, I don't know, something in the water, something's catching. It's crazy. Or we're just obeying the gospel. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. A gospel preaching church tends to be a church that experiences baby booms throughout its history. So uh, we're in a good place. You know if you've just had kids that uh, you are now defeated, right? You realize that you're not going to win the diaper battle. Remember that moment? First time you open the first nuclear one, you're like, it's over. (laughs) So I might as well just accept my lot in life, you know? My house is never going to be clean again. If you come to our house, you recognize our furniture is fairly old, uh, and that's on purpose because we realized when we were young that our children were terrorists and they were just bound and determined to destroy everything we own. And so we thought, why bother? Why bother having nice furniture when they're just going to wreck it? So we got slipcover furniture, in fact, because they were constantly barfing on things. you know, So they would barf on it, no problem, take off the slipcover, clean it, we're good. We just accepted our lot in life. We accepted defeat. We realized there's no way we're going to win, so we're just going to focus on having a good time. The problem is when you're a young married couple and you focus on having a good time, more kids keep showing up, you're like, dang it, this is not helping. (laughs) We're part of the problem. By the time you realize you're part of the problem, you have teenagers, then you're really sunk. I realize this is my second triathlon. My first triathlon, I almost died. I told you this joke before, it was awesome. I blogged about it the day after. My opening line was, when I got passed by the one-legged man and the 74-year-old woman, I realized it was going to be a very bad day. Triathlon organizers are sadistic. They write everyone's age on the back of their calf. And so when the 74 year old woman just whoops you, she just blows by you like you're standing still. The self loathing is real, let me tell you. The first one was horrible. I literally almost died. The second one, I was prepared. And so people would ask me, So, you know, what's your goal? You know, where are you trying to finish? Yes. You know? (laughs) I was trying to finish. This year, I'm doing my third Olympic distance triathlon, and so uh, I keep getting asked, so, you know, what was your time last year? I'm like, bro, I stopped counting years ago. I've just accepted defeat. I used to think that I'd be a top finisher in my age group. Nope. So I just accept defeat, and instead, I focus on having a good time. This happens to you in your 40s, right? We all think we're going to grow up to be JFK someday, you know. I'm going to be Tom Cruise. I'm going to change the world. And then you hit your 40s or somewhere in your late 30s. Maybe in your late 40s you realize that's probably not going to happen. And so you trade your lofty goals for, I'm just happy to be here. Let's try and have a good time. Can you relate? I'm just happy to be here. Let's try and have a good time. Ultimately, this kind of surrender is what the gospel teaches. The Gospel is a difficult and a beautiful thing. It tells us that God exists and He made everything that is, including us. It tells us that God made humanity to be His friends. The story tells us that we messed it all up when our first parents sinned in the Garden of Eden, disobeying God's clear order not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They sinned and rebelled because they wanted to be equal with God. They figured, why should God have something that we don't have? So from jealousy, from pride, from a desire to ascend God's throne for ourselves, sin and rebellion came into the human race, and it's been with us ever since. And this is why your life is always difficult, and this is why our world is always miserable, because we have a sin problem that we inherited from our first parents. And so we kill each other, and we oppress each other, and we fight each other for power and influence. Are you so sick of all the election campaign ads already? Every one of them is lying about something. Just trying to do whatever they can to destroy their adversary. But God did not leave us alone in our sin. In the fullness of time, He sent His Son, Jesus. God the Son became a man. Remaining fully God and being fully man. He lived a perfect life, fully fulfilling the will of God. When the time had come, He was hung on a cross between two thieves to die. He suffered and died in your place and mine for our sin. Big enough to carry the sins of the world. Man enough to die for it. And Jesus died in your place so that you might live. And then he rose again. <laughs> that first Easter Sunday morning, defeating the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell in his body. He her the Father's right hand. he sat down in victory. That's where he is right now, cheering for you. Because you're his friend. You've been restored in Jesus to right relationship with the Godhead. As a result, you don't have to live as a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to let the way of the world ruin you. And you don't have to participate in business as usual. The gospel teaches us that God wins. And ultimately, you're just fortunate to be his friend. You feel fortunate to be his friend? (laughs) I often have these moments where I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I'm glad that I'm your friend. God wins. We're just lucky to be his friends. The sooner that you learn and apply this great truth to your life, God wins. And you're just fortunate to be his friend, the happier you're going to be. So let's get to it. This is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17. We have it for you on screen. Take a look. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What a wonderful, wonderful, powerful, encouraging passage of Scripture. Here in this passage today, we see a countercultural recipe for living the good life, having hope, and doing good. I've divided the passage into three parts for you. The first part deals with being countercultural, that's verses 8 and 9. The second part gives us the keys to the good life, that's verses 10 through 12 the last part, verses 13 through 17, deals with having hope and doing good. Let's look at the counter, countercultural part first. Here's verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Newsflash: flash, Christians are supposed to be different. We're supposed to live different than the world around us. We've talked about this throughout the series. One of the central tensions that Peter's original audience were dealing with was the cultural distance that was cropping up between them and their neighbors as the gospel of Christ began to lead them to live in a way that was different from their peers. And that difference was causing alienation to creep into their life experience, and it was troubling them, and so Peter wrote this letter to comfort them and to exhort them to continue doing what they're doing because they were finding that living different was difficult. Can you relate? It's difficult to live different. But that is what a Christian is called to do, to live different. Verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Six things here, six signs of what it looks like to live different. Who does this? I mean, who of us really does this? Who really lives like it's not about me, but it's about all of us together? Finally, all of you. Do you live this way? Do you live like your life is not just about you, but it's about all of us? I find this challenging so much right off the top that I almost want to quit. I can take this one point and I'm good. I need to work on this for a minute. Who lives like this? Like, it's not all about you. It's all about us. Finally, all of you. Who lives like we agree to agree on stuff, have unity of mind? Who lives like this all the time? That we agree to agree, right? Like, we may disagree, but we're going to agree to agree. We're going to have unity. Who, Who does this? Who lives like compassion is the way we relate to one another, The word sympathy is really rendered compassion in the original. Do we live like this? Like, having compassion for one another is our MO. It's literally how we carry ourselves all the time. Who lives like they're from Philly? It's literally philadelphia Brotherly love. You need to eat more cheesesteak, man. For the sake of Jesus' fame. Seriously, go out this week, have a cheesesteak, and determine to love your sisters and brothers. Because I live like I'm from Toronto half the time. Or New York. Or Atlanta. Or Chicago. Or Vancouver. We need to live like we're from Philly. We need to be people marked by brotherly love. How many of us treat each other tenderly and courteously as a matter of course? Do you find this as hopelessly challenging as I do? Tenderness, courtesy, that's what is implied in a humble mind. You might get one, but you still struggle with the other, right? You might be good with courtesy. Courtesy, I believe, can be learned. There's certain things we do that help us be courteous, but to have a tender heart, that's difficult. So ask yourself this question, what can I do this week? What can I do this month? What can I do as this year unfolds to live more like that? Literally more like verse 8. Because that's what Jesus' people are supposed to look like. And they're not, in the words of verse 9, supposed to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Jesus' people don't get even. I was deeply troubled this week listening to Sports Talk Radio We're talking about the sale of the Carolina Panthers, NFL football franchise that ran into some trouble last year because it turns out their owner was a bigot and a misogynist. So the league forced him to sell his team. They found a buyer, and he owns a hedge fund. She's like, this is going to be great, because hedge fund guys are super nice. Way to go. You got rid of one maniac and hired another. How do I know? Well, because they shared the following story. He was working in one of the big uh, investment banks on Wall Street. The name escapes me. I, like, made sure I would remember it when I drove up. Not Bear Stearns. That one's gone. What's the other big one? No, the other one. Yes. So he's working at Goldman. Working his way up, doing a good job, his portfolio was growing and growing and growing, so he was due for a promotion. He was due to be made a partner, and he got passed over for a partnership. So in a huff, he left Goldman, and he launched his own firm. And he grew that firm to about $56 million in terms of assets, which is, of course, not huge, given the kind of stuff that he was used to dealing with. And then as the housing crisis loomed, he realized that the banks were going to fail, And so he bet against the American banks, betting that the American government would eventually have to bail out the American banks. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And his $56 million (laughs) turned into, I don't even know what it is, like almost $100 billion, like ridiculous amount of money, which of course comes from the American taxpayer. That money came from the U.S. government. So flush with his new riches, he went and bought the house of the man at Goldman Sachs who'd refused his promotion, tore it down, and built one twice its size in its place, and then was quoted to say, looks like there is some justice in the world after all. And I thought as I heard that, I thought, no, son, You've just proved that there is evil in the world after all. Watch out now, child. Jesus' people, we don't get even. Jesus' people don't ever do anything like that. Now, your life may not be on the scale of a you know, golden sacks and 100 billion dollars, Guaranteed, you will be tempted to get even. You will be tempted to seek justice for yourself from time to time. And Jesus, people don't do that. You want to live counter culturally, leave justice to God. Realize that you were called to bless and that blessing is the pathway to blessing. It's writ clear as day in today's text. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Blessing is the pathway to blessing. And we'd all rather be blessed than cursed, wouldn't we? It's another way of saying we'd all like to live the good life. Here's how to get it. Look at verses 10 through 12. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Man, this is fun to preach. All right. You want the good life? Here's how. Watch what you say, watch what you do, and chase peace like you chased your wife when she was 17. Okay, you want the good life? That's, that's how. I got a snarky comment online when I referenced this this week. It was like, as long as you were 17 at the time. I'm like, yes, of course, I meant that in that way. Watch what you say, watch what you do, and chase peace... Like she's your wife. Look at verse 10. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This has got some powerful hot truth embedded in it for us. Manage what you say. Make sure you stop lying. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Manage what you say. Here's a question. How many times in your life have you sought to manage what someone else says? Huh. Somebody shout. Somebody shout. Maybe I deal with that more than you. Maybe. (laughs) I saw this like every preacher loves this verse. Word up. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Manage what you say. You know, if Christians tweaked this one aspect of our behavior, the reputation of Christ would take a huge leap in culture. Am I right? How often are Christians quoted shaking their finger at culture? You... I I can't even. (laughs) Saying all these asinine things, have you ever thought how stupid it is to somebody who's perishing to have someone who's been redeemed tell them how they should act? Maybe the person who's redeemed needs to read the Bible more and be reminded that the gospel is foolishness to them that are perishing. So if your approach to someone who's perishing is to scold them, you're wasting everybody's time You're bringing shame, not fame, to the name of Christ. That's why evangelism is primarily leveraged on love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe change that one thing about your behavior this week. Catch yourself. You're about to say to somebody, oh, you really shouldn't say that, and then stop yourself. Manage what you say. While we're on the topic, why don't you manage what you do 10b, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him turn away from evil and do good. I'll say it again. Let her turn away from evil and do good. Don't try and turn someone else away from evil. You turn away from evil and do good. You turn away from evil and do good. You know what's beautiful about this? In Jesus, you're free to do it. Did you know the Bible says that those who are unredeemed, those who are not yet Jesus' friends, are sold as slaves to sin. Which means they cannot help but sin because they are enslaved to it. But in Jesus, you're no longer a slave. You've been made free to be free. Yes, some of us, even as we walk with Jesus, continue to sin. In fact, it's true for all of us. But it is also true that though we are yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us and has shown us everything we need for life, righteousness, holiness. So you don't have to sin if you don't want to. In Jesus, you're free to choose not to sin. Instead, you can practice doing the right thing moment by moment. You have that choice before you this week, this month, this year. Ask yourself in the moment, what's the right thing to do? And this may be difficult, and this may change what you are about to do. And it may change it in a way that you know will make life more difficult for you rather than easier. This is why so many Christians lack so much in righteousness, because we know that capital R righteousness belongs to God and God alone, and that in Christ we can learn to be righteous. I always keep it as like a small R. I'm like mini-me. Right? We can learn to be righteous as we follow Jesus, our righteous Lord and example. But doing the right thing sometimes comes at a cost, which is why so many of us don't like to do it. Manage what you say, manage what you do, and chase peace like she's your hot wife. Look at verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue her, it says in the Greek. Is that much better than it? Peace has a personality. She can be caught. It's encouraging, isn't it? Right? Because peace has an abstraction, peace has an it. I can't have a relationship with that. I can't catch an it. It's like saying, catch the wind, catch the air, catch the truth. Holy Spirit inspired the writer to give hope a personality. Isn't that encouraging? Maybe it's just me, I'm like a Bible geek. I'm like, that's the best thing ever. Seek peace and pursue her. Chase her like she's your, the wife of your youth. Chase her. In Jesus, you can catch her. It's beautiful. And look, in case all this you know, positive reinforcement, recipe for the good life stuff ain't getting to you yet, Peter reminds us what's what in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That should sober you up real quick. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So ask yourself this week, am I living in such a way that I'm making God my adversary? But did you know that it's even possible? This is an obscure part of Christian doctrine. You wouldn't really, you know, you don't memorize this in Sunday school. You can make God your enemy if you keep acting the fool. Right now, I don't believe we're talking here about soteriology. We're not talking about whether you're saved or not, whether you're going to go to hell or not. I don't think that's what's in question, but I do think what's in question here is what kind of life you're going to live. How many of us would agree that better to live as God's friend than as his enemy? The beautiful thing about living different, the beautiful thing about living the good life, is that living that way leads to having hope and doing good. Part one and part two lead to part three. Part three is contained in verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, but... Another promise, an exhortation, some life coaching, a missional reminder, then a command, a practical reminder, and then an assurance of victory. So I want you to watch for these eight things. Yes, this is like one of those 18-point sermons. A promise, another promise, an exhortation, some life coaching, a missional reminder, then a command, a practical reminder, and an assurance of victory. Part one, the promise. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you? If you imitate what is good. If you are zealous for what is good, is rendered in the English and it falls down. In the Greek, now who is there to harm you if you imitate what is good? You can't lose if you live Jesus' way. Did you receive it this morning? Can't lose if you live life Jesus' way. If you imitate Christ, you're going to win. Some doubt preached that in a church in Atlanta. You know what happens in a church in Atlanta when you say, if you imitate imitate Christ, you'll win? People go, oh! Woo! Maybe you're doing that on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) If you imitate Jesus, you'll win. So stop thinking of yourself as a loser and start thinking of yourself as victorious. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but there is some prosperity in the gospel. If you imitate Christ, you'll win. Another promise, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. This is why you can't ever preach like a true prosperity gospel, because almost every time the Bible says you're going to be blessed, it also says, with persecutions by the way, Isn't that beautiful how following on the one verse we get to the next one? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. The Bible knows that life ain't all tea and crumpets. Sometimes you still suffer, even when you do the right thing. So don't let it discourage you. It's like he's giving you a warning in advance that you're going to suffer even when you do the right thing. Do you ever feel ripped off? Like, I'm doing the right thing, Lord, so why am I suffering? Okay, if you ever feel that way, it's connected to biblical ignorance. So now we're delivered from that ignorance because we've read here in 1 Peter that sometimes we still suffer even when doing good. Receive it. So next time that happens to you, you don't got to fall into despair. You're not cursed. You haven't done something wrong. It just happens. Don't let it discourage you. Know that your victory is assured in Jesus. This is why the words of 2 Corinthians 4 have such powerful resonance. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison... As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Your suffering may be heavy, but Jesus is in the business of turning heaviness into glory. Glory means weight. It means heaviness. I'll say it again. Jesus is in the business of turning heaviness into glory. It's what he does. And so that promise leads to an exhortation in verse 14b. Have no fear. Nor be troubled. Because your suffering will turn to glory one day. The best news you heard all week? Definitely the best thing you heard all week. Definitely. I feel like I could stop on each point. It's just crazy. It's not me, friends. This this the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two edged sword. So in the meantime, number four, a little life coaching. Verse fifteen A in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. The way you survive the shadowlands is to make much of Jesus. Y'all feel me? It's how you survive the shadowlands. You make much of Jesus. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And let your dazzling love of Jesus be your testimony to a lost and dying world. I say it again. Let that be your testimony to a lost and dying world. Your dazzling love of Christ. There's your missional reminder, point number five, 15B. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Here we see evangelism walked out. You're living, you're building relationship with people, And all of a sudden, they start asking you questions. Like, um, how come life doesn't seem to make you as miserable as it does me? If you're one of Jesus' people, your answer is this. It's because of Jesus. They'll be like, that's kind of weird, but it's your friends. You know, you're having a barbecue. You're having a beverage. They know you're not weird because you're their friend. And so they have to take your testimony seriously Because they can't discount it out of mind because they've just met you. Um, How come your marriage seems so good? Uh, It's because of Jesus. Ask my wife. (laughs) Definitely not because of me. It's because of Jesus. Um, How come you have people over all the time and cook them these extravagant meals? It's because of Jesus. Jared's not here today, right? Jared Irving, if you don't know him, I'll introduce you to him. He sits in the back, dresses like a hipster, always wears cool glasses. Got a wife who looks like a pixie. She looks like Tinkerbell. (laughs) Sweet kids. Sit right back there. So go meet him. He practices culinary evangelism. Every time you go to his house, he cooks for you like you're Jesus. Like it's literally fit for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Why do you go to all that trouble? He would tell you it's because of Jesus. Um, How come you adopted your foster kids when it meant you'd lose money? Um, That's because of Jesus. You tell people that your beautiful, screwed up life is because of Jesus enough times. You can quote me on that. I said it your beautiful, screwed-up life. You tell them it's because of Jesus enough times? I'll say it again. You tell people enough times that your beautiful, screwed-up life is because of Jesus, eventually they will ask you, so i got to ask a follow-up, how does this whole Jesus thing work anyways? And then you bring them to church so they can taste the good Jesus they have seen at work in you. Tough crowd, tough crowd. <laughs> I want to throw the pulpit. I'm freaking out. <sighs> <sighs> Lord, have mercy. Then you bring them to church so they can taste the good Jesus they have seen at work in you. And you, you know? And you, you do this gently and with respect and in an authentic way. that's your command as we close. Worship team, you can join me with a reminder and an assurance of victory. You do all this, verse 16, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you will be put to shame. Seventh point, there's a practical reminder here, you will be slandered because you are a Jesus person, but you will be vindicated. So don't bother trying to live an undercover Jesus life, don't bother trying to soft pedal the gospel, don't bother wasting any of your time trying to appear normal, because if you're a Jesus person, you will be slandered. But those who revile you will be put to shame. Why? Because ultimately, God wins. Eighth point. Ultimately, it's His will that bends the universe. Put that on a t-shirt. We got stickers with hashtags. It's His will that bends the universe. So verse 17, look, you know, I mean, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Let's just agree that whatever God's will is, that's what we want. Somebody testify to that? Whatever God's will is, that's what I want. Why? Because He's ultimately in control. He's ultimately going to win. So you might as well stop competing. And instead, just focus on having a good time.